Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Do you think we're too sensitive as a society, particularly on the internet? I could show you a couple of the, the tweets I've had to see over the last couple of days, and they might all seem fine, um, or like it's easy to brush it off. But in the context of like dealing with this for, I don't know how many, like over 10 years, and a lot of it, and sometimes it's huge pylons, um, it, it feels very different. Another analogy I have heard sometimes is like, um, if somebody steps on your foot by accident, and you respond really negatively, they may say like, why are you so upset? Like, why are you so sensitive? Like, I just accidentally stepped on your foot. Like, you don't need to like get upset at me. But if you're the person whose foot got stepped on and you've been stepped on like thousands of times and your foot is sore already, then when, when this other person like accidentally steps on you, it already hurts. And it's a huge pattern of problematic behavior and hurt that you have accrued. And so the responses feel different and they, they feel mismatched and like both sides may feel um, upset at the other because they're just operating from different contexts. Welcome back to Yang Speaks. I am your co-host, Zach Grauman. Today, we are talking about the future of censorship with a woman, incredible woman named Tracy Chow. I just had a conversation with her. She is the founder of a, a new app. She just launched it called Block Party. And what it does is right now just on Twitter, but it allows you to simply filter out crappy comments and hateful comments or mean comments or annoying comments you don't want to see on Twitter. And... It's user empowered, so it's, it's not on the big tech company to do it, it's on you. And we talk about not just her app, which is pretty fascinating, but censorship in big tech and this new world that we're creating that lacks social norms. And I learned so much by talking to Tracy. I said this on the pod, but I, I feel like I, she hit me over the head three or four times with like a different perspective on how we view censoring out offensive speech on the internet. And it's, uh, it's something we're going to have to deal with as a society, particularly as a younger generation. This problem is not going away. And so you are going to enjoy this one. I mean that because I enjoyed it. I learned a ton. So tune in, guys. The future of censorship with the founder of Block Party, Tracy Chow, here on Yank Speaks.
Welcome back to Yang Speaks in our newest episode, The Future Of, and we are talking about the future of censorship today. And we have, honestly, to be honest with you guys, every time we bring on a badass entrepreneur, I get very excited because I love people who build things. I think building things are hard, specifically if someone can find a way to create an organization and a company and a revenue model, that makes the world a better place. So I'm excited we have uh, the prime example of that, Tracy Chow, who's the founder and CEO of Block Party today. Tracy, welcome to the future of How Are You? Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Super excited. Let's start with you. Your background's fascinating. I know that you you have a, a like an engineering coding background, um, which kudos to you. That's you know, I, I suck at learning languages. I've been told coding is like learning another language. So tell us about you, Tracy, and welcome. My background, uh, when some people look at it, it feels like the most quintessential Silicon Valley background. So I grew up in the Bay Area. Oh, Both wow. my parents were software Home engineers. <laughs> they have PhDs in computer science. So I grew up um, in the 80s in a house that had just lots of computers and computer parts everywhere. Um, I didn't know what all that was. Uh, back then, also, computers were not as sexy. It was just like those like, big CRT monitors. Um, black screens, green text, kind of matrix looking. My grandpa um, and my dad were engineers. So this stuff was around. They sounded less, they yeah. sound less smart than your parents were. But, you know, similar. <laughs> yeah. So I had a very Silicon Valley upbringing. Um, I grew up in the Bay Area, went to school, Mountain View. Uh, my high school actually invested in the seed round of Snap, which is funny. High school? And weird. Yes. It's very you odd. You did grow up in Silicon Valley. <laughs> I did. Um, and I went to Stanford University, not really knowing exactly what I wanted to do, but being in that environment, it was just very easy to get drawn into the world of tech. So I have um, two engineering degrees from Stanford, electrical engineering, computer science, and almost naturally got pulled into the valley working in tech companies, um, did internships at Google and Facebook when I was in university. And when I graduated, um, Worked at Quora, the question and answer site. Very early, I was the second engineer hired onto the team. Um, Pinterest, I joined when it was roughly 10 people. Um, so I got to see a few of these companies from the ground up, really. Um, and so I had that background in engineering, having built products. Um, kind of as a side note on all of that, though, despite the fact that it felt like I just had this straight pathway into Silicon Valley tech and startups, it wasn't that easy. And in hindsight, now I realize that a lot of it has to do with the fact that I'm a woman. And there's still quite a lot of gender bias and discrimination. And so despite my entire background, seeming like I was being groomed for this, um, I got a lot of pushback for entering the field. Um, a lot of people kind of discouraging me from being technical, saying things like your technical background would make you great for recruiting, or great for design or great for sales and marketing, all these different things are totally important parts of the ecosystem, but it was just this expectation that women would not become engineers, not really be working in product. Were a lot of your classes all guys at Stanford? Mostly. Uh, there was usually at least one other woman or two others, but it was the sort of environment where if I went to go see a professor, they would recognize me as one of the three women in the class. I remember talking to one Professor once who was just like, oh, like, oh, you, you, yeah, you're the Asian girl. The class was also a white girl and a black girl. I was like, well, that's that's great. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so that subtext is relevant um, to the work I was doing in engineering and product because I started to understand the lack of diversity and representation 
on the teams I was working on had very material impacts on the products we were building. And in particular, I was working on the social consumer products that had people, users generating content, interacting with each other. And I really came to appreciate how all of our product decisions were embedding the biases that we carried as humans writing the code. And even though there is an instinct for folks to think of code as being neutral, that, that idea of like technology platforms being neutral, like it's just code or it's just algorithms. Uh, from that perspective of being a software engineer helping to design a lot of these companies from the ground up, the sort of product constructs within them, uh, working on things like home feed and search and recommendations for both Quora and Pinterest, uh, I really came to see how we embedded all of our biases into these products. We took our best guesses, our intuitions, in designing our products and thinking through what people would want to see, but we're very limited based on our own experiences. Some of these new and innovative, like the pioneers, like the trailblazing aspect of tech, um, they are building new systems, new ways of operating, right? But the problem is if the only people that have access at the ground floor, these new trailblazing uh, technologies to say are frankly, rich white dudes that look and talk like myself, and that's it, then we end up just building maybe a slightly better, but still just, you know, just as in an equal world that we have. We build another one, right? It just kind of reflects right. the same thing. It's just in a different way. One of the um, very key experiences I had early at Quora was that even when the site was only maybe a few thousand users, um, I was already getting harassed on the site. And there's different ways to define what harassment is. And people could argue like, well, that's not technically harassment. My experience on the receiving end was there was someone interacting with me in ways that I did not like that were very annoying and I wanted it to stop. And so when I joined Quora as an engineer, the first thing I built was the block button. So I wanted this person to stop being able to comment on my answers, up on my answers, message me. I was very excited to make this person the first person ever blocked on Quora. Were you assigned to do that or you're like came in engineering? You're like, no, no, this needs to happen. In the early days, the roadmap is a lot more flexible and people on the team will often have influence on what gets built next based on how strongly they feel about something. There's the a rough roadmap voice. for the overall. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Or just like personal conviction about something. And for me, it was also... Um, my first job coming out of school. So I was relatively junior and wanted to pick off something that was a smaller task at first just to get going. And it felt like a reasonably useful feature that was not too big that I could bite off as a first task. Um, but I'm pretty sure that the block button would not have been built as early as it was if I hadn't been pushing for it and wanting it so personally. Um, so these different threads of my background, I have the engineering side, product building side, and also the experience of even from very early dealing with harassment or unwanted content or just wanting to have a little bit more control over my own experience. Um, those things have led into me building Block Party. Um, another aspect of it is like it's so entangled. Um, having worked on these products and in these teams, um, I came to feel very strongly that we needed more diversity and inclusion in tech workforces. Um, and over the last, I guess, 10 or so years have done quite a bit of activism around diversity and inclusion in tech. And in doing so have built a bit more of a platform, uh, primarily on Twitter, which is uh, my ad addictive platform of choice. 
And as, as my platform there has grown a little bit, um, it's also subjected me to more abuse and harassment, uh, which I think is not unrelated to the fact that the people building this platform early did not experience it and so did not build in the sort of safeguards. Right, right. Oh, interesting. Uh, they weren't yeah. So Andrew and I were talking about this um, when he was running for president and he was starting to get bigger. He had like, he was getting to like, uh, he now has 2 million Twitter followers or so. And, and But it was a point where he's at like, you know, 50,000 to 100,000. And he was getting advice from people that were a little more famous on Twitter than him. Like when he stopped reading the comments, you know, um, and what, what your point to your makes is interesting is that I, I basically got the, the trickle, like the funnel effects from Andrew's followers and people followed me like by default, which was, which is fun. And there's a nice community there, but I get harassed too. And it's, um, I think what you're saying is like, yeah, as a white guy, if you think it's bad uh, in this tech world, like people of color and women are getting it way worse. And that I've seen, I've seen that. The way this has skewed, it's um, if it's built by the wrong people who aren't experiencing the prioritization, like you're saying, of building those safeguards, don't start. So you create block party. Tell me how it works. You also, I love that you make blocking stuff sound fun. Um, it's not, it's not like fun by nature. I don't know. Uh, so tell us how it works. Sure. So the idea behind block party is that we wanted to build consumer tools for managing and dealing with online harassment and just unwanted content, generally giving people more control over their online experience. We're starting off with tools for Twitter. Um, and the core product as it is right now is pretty simple. You Sign up for Block Party, you link your Twitter account, and you set a bunch of filtering options where you can say, uh, I need a break is one of the names of our modes, which is like a more restrictive setting, I need a break. And in this mode, um, you can you can also have like uh, further rules around filtering. You could say, I don't want to hear from anybody unless they're followed by somebody I follow or they're a verified user or it's somebody that I've interacted with recently and everyone else, please filter them out. And what Block Party does is run in the background to keep filtering. Uh, it will automatically mute anybody that doesn't pass the filters, which means that you can use Twitter as normal, check your mentions, check your notifications, and it's quieter. There's less of the stuff that you may not want to deal with, but everything that's been filtered and hidden um, actually ends up in a folder on Block Party that you can still check when you want to. So you could if go you in to. and have a hate-filled day if you really wanted to. If you want to, yeah. <laughs> and um, you could check it too, though. Sometimes the filter, you're like, oh, yeah. I'm too strict. I actually don't mind those comments, stuff like that. Right. So um, one thing that is pretty key to understand is people use these public platforms in order to engage with a wider audience. That's mm-hmm. the point of having one of these platforms. Yeah, especially it's, Twitter, right? Where it's right. Yeah, to but be a lot of other shareable. ones too, like you're trying to reach other people. If you wanted to just reach your existing friends, you could start a group chat with them, but this is, it's meant to be a different platform. Um, And I certainly have benefited a lot from Twitter as a public platform. Uh, And I like to engage with folks that I don't already know. Um, I've heard really interesting things from people in the comments. And there's a lot of really positive things that come out of having a public presence. Um, For journalists, it might be like hearing tips for stories or hearing feedback on articles they've written for politicians, maybe engaging with constituents, answering questions about policy stances. Um, for activists, it is like reaching more people. There's a lot of positive, which is why we're on these platforms. Uh, the thing is, we're trying to balance it also with the potential negative. And 
you may want to set your filtering rules very high in order to make sure you have less likelihood of seeing bad stuff or upsetting stuff, knowing that you will overfilter some of the good stuff as well. And so it's good then to be able to go into the folder and check any potential good stuff that got filtered. Uh, on the flip side, sometimes you do need to be aware of very negative things. Um, so I've also had the personal experience of having to deal with uh, more elevated stalking and harassment. I needed to be aware of what was happening. And so even if I didn't want to get notifications uh, of comments from stalkers or harassers, I still need to check it regularly to make sure that there's no escalation and threat. Um, unfortunately, there have been cases where it rose to a level of physical stalking. And so I really did need to be aware of what was happening. So kind of like just muting a bunch of notifications and pretending that this content doesn't exist can also be dangerous. And so what Block Party is doing is giving you more control over when you see this content so you can be mentally prepared for it. Uh, there's some time delay. It doesn't feel like it has to interrupt your day. When you do want to go look at this stuff, you're ready for it. You're, you're choosing to go into it. It's not just messing yeah. up your Tuesday. Right. And one of the experiences I had was just noticing... I checked Twitter all throughout the day, but uh, before I had Block Party running and filtering, that just meant that any point throughout the day, I could see something upsetting that would throw me off for a few minutes or <laughs> even more. Um, and I find it analogous actually to when I walk down the street, get street harassment in any big city, as a woman in particular, very likely to encounter some street harassment. And even if you can shake it off, knowing that it's probably harmless. They're probably not going to do anything. It is still upsetting. And I had the same sort of reaction to seeing harassment or just unpleasant comments um, and replies on Twitter. And I don't like being subjected to that all throughout the day. And so if I can isolate it to a certain time when I'm ready to go look at it, it's much better. Well, I love about the app and, and this just a concept in general is putting the control in the user's hands as opposed to relying on Twitter and relying on, frankly, like Jack Dorsey and his judgment well-intentioned if it may be, uh, that's still like, that's that's top down. I like the bottom up play. Censoring hate or negativity or tone, like all these things are by definition generally gray. I mean, there's certain things, I think hate speech is pretty clearly defined, um, at least from an illegal standpoint. But how do you, um, like algorithmically, like on the back end, uh, determine what's, angry? What is mean? Yeah, I think there's a few points to address here. Um, one that flows pretty naturally from a couple of points you just raised is that there's a certain level of um, restriction that platforms would want to enforce. Uh, and so there's that terms of service agreement where they'll say like, if you get past this line, there's like a bright red line here, no child sexual exploitation, no hate speech of a certain form. Like once you get past that line, the platforms will take your content off, um, potentially deplatform you. That's a very severe line. On the other side, there's what individuals may or may not want to hear. That's a there's a very big space in between those things. And so, from my perspective, as soon as I see things in, in my my folder on Block Party, I think it's like, oh, you're just like an ugly, skinny Chinese girl from San Francisco. Like, well, I don't know You need to, if you need to have your Twitter account taken away for that, but I also don't need to see it. <laughs> There's no need for me to have my like brain polluted with your crappy thoughts. So in that space, there is a lot of room for consumer choice. And the way I think about what Block Party is doing in terms of filtering is 
let's just give people a little bit more control over what they see. It doesn't mean that those folks who are tweeting these nasty things can't do that for now, or we can kind of put that aside and say like, fine, you can post these mean things, um, but I don't need to see them. So this kind of question of like, do you get distribution on your content is very different than do you have freedom of speech um, and are you censored? So fine, you can have freedom to speak and I have freedom to not listen. So that's that's like a, a pretty big distinction to make. Um, one other thing to get to is kind of like, how do you detect this hate? And so that's my real, like, where, where does yeah. it, does it, you have like a whole list of bad words. Uh, does it, I mean, AI could probably pick up tone and, and interesting things now, like what? And I'm assuming as a startup, it's your call out the gate, right? Like, I mean, you're giving people power, but you are, you and your engineers are creating the algorithm that's determining what's bad. How does, how, I'm just, I'm, I mean, I'm so naive, like I have no idea how this works. So yeah. where do you start there? How does that work? Yeah, so one thing I would say on this front is the way that most people and platforms conceptualize content moderation, I find flawed where this framing of, there's content and then we're going to assess if it's good or not. And then if it's good, we allow it to go through. And if it's not, then we block it. I find this construction is oversimplistic and flawed. And there is a better way to think about it in a more holistic way. Uh, and so that is part of the product philosophy behind Block Party, that it's not just about looking at individual pieces of content and saying it's okay or not. It's really understanding the end user experience. So we center the experience of somebody who may have to deal with content coming from all directions, people who may be also following you across platforms, or there may be a, a pattern of behavior that is um, problematic. A lot of people like to go to artificial intelligence as a solution for it to say like, oh, like we should be able to detect if there's hate, if we should be able to detect if the tone is negative, we should be able to detect if there's harassment. And my take on that is you can use AI machine learning to help in some cases, but you'll never get all the way there. People are very creative with harassment. Um, there are some things which you'll never be able to figure out unless you have full like context understanding. Yeah, so we have a sentient what, being as our AI. And even then, like if you have like smart people, they may not understand the context and they may not That's realize true. That's what true. is That's true. There was a lot of offensive. stuff we didn't realize in the beginning of the Andrew Yang campaign where yeah. I wasn't, the team was on a tune to like certain racist or whatever extreme right. hateful so, cultures and you don't flag so it early enough. Some of the it. things that I've gotten, I'm almost 100% confident would not get picked up by machine learning. So things like, I used to have um, an illustrated avatar of me with a dog. There's just a cute dog that I liked. Um, and the response that I got to that were like, don't accidentally eat your dog, which is obviously meant to be a racist stereotype. Um, I'm not even part of the like Asian subgroup that that stereotype is directed at, but the people who are being racist don't care. So again, like it doesn't matter. Um, so that kind of thing. AI is going to be challenged to detect correctly. And if the way that you action on the classification of these um, pieces of content is like, we just allow it or don't allow it, then you get into a lot of questions on it. Is it censorship? Like, how do you know that it's bad enough to, to remove um, versus the way that block party is set up, which is just saying like for the 
end user, the consumer, like I can just choose to not see this stuff. I'm not not allowing you to post it. Um, it's more just like on my side, I, I can filter, but I'll still see it later. And so the fact that we have uh, constructed the product such that you'll still see it later removes a lot of those questions about like, do we get it exactly right? Do we classify it exactly correct? We can say they we have tolerance nice. for error. We have tolerance yeah. for overfiltering because it's just it's designed it for error in its own way, right? Where people can right. Yeah, so it's like I'm, I'm actually totally okay to have it overfilter because I will see it later. Mm-hmm. All I'm doing is, is is like making it so that I'll check it a few days later, as opposed to I don't allow you to post it. Um, and with this kind of built into the product, it also makes it so that um, we don't even need to be that smart with the artificial intelligence, quote unquote. Um, we're actually using pretty simple heuristics right now. And it turns out these heuristics, like, is this user verified? Is this user followed by anybody I follow? Like these heuristics work really well. Um, you can also look at things like how many followers does this person have? When did they create their account? Do they have a profile photo set? And even very simple rules like this work pretty well. And in the edge cases or the cases where there's over filtering, it's okay. You just see it later. Uh, and so, yeah, like this, this question of artificial intelligence comes up a lot. Everybody wants to ask like, what is your technology behind? I think there's this allure of technology being the savior uh, for all of our, you know, all of our issues. One of the big takeaways I had from studying AI in the academic setting and also building some of these models uh, when I worked at Quora and at Pinterest is that in order to build these models, you ha- need to understand the problem. So you understand the domain um, and then have some understanding of what heuristics are good. So, uh, I guess it does depend a bit on like what kind of machine learning models you're choosing. But for some types of models, it is really like you need to understand the domain to figure out what features are relevant to include in your model. Um, with some of the newer versions of machine learning, like the um, like deep learning stuff, neural nets that are starting to become more popular, the idea is that you don't have to pre-select what the features are as What's much. What's it called? The neural what? Neural nets. Um, neural net. Is this, this is yeah. like Elon Musk's like upload your conscience or is this different? Kind of. Yeah. It's like a lot of the new like AI advances have come out in the last, let's say almost 10 years have been in neural nets, deep learning, kind of like mm-hmm. the, what people are talking about. That's, that's so, terrifying and awesome, but terrifying. In some ways it is. In other ways, it's not um, in a very simplistic way. It's just mathematical models. So you probably studied some things in like, even like middle school or high school math. It was like Y equals MX plus B. That is a model. That is a linear model. So all you're doing is saying we have one input feature, which is your X and your output is the Y. And so that's a very simple model. When you get fancier, you might have like AX squared plus BX plus C. So then, then, yeah, then now we have like, yeah, now we have like uh, a few more parameters to fit and it's a quadratic model instead of a linear model. Um, other forms of like machine learning, artificial intelligence are just different models like this where you figure out what the structure of the solution is and then you fit some some like numbers, some parameters in there. Um, but it's really just fancy math. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. 
Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. You know, my, my uncle worked at, um, at Intel for decades and he's, they always work on really cutting edge stuff before it's like anywhere near mainstream. And his theory, like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, was like, someday you're gonna be able to look at something, buy it. You wanna look at something, comment on it, but not actually have to do it. Um, we're not there yet, but that's theoretically, ideally where we can go. And maybe to your point, like you could look at something and say, I don't ever wanna see something like that again. Um, you know, right? Like, I don't want that in my world. Is that, do you think about that stuff as an entrepreneur in the early stages or do you, you're like, hey, I just need a good product that helps people like filter out the hate in a fun, simplistic learning way? I think there's always some level of thinking about long-term and where are we potentially heading and also a little bit of like in the worst case scenarios, what are all the things that could go wrong? Um, I may do this more than other folks, maybe from doing a lot of work around diversity and inclusion in tech and seeing when you go off the rails, what are the potential abuses? What are the potential worst case outcomes? Um, but in the immediate term, short term, we need to build a useful product. And it's not that helpful to keep ruminating about if we're wildly successful 15 what years if? down the line, yeah. what happens? <laughs> like there's still some thinking about it. Like what is a potential path here? Are mm. there obvious bad things that we should be steering clear of or safeguards that we should be building in now? But it is a balance where there's a lot that needs to be done right now. And some of the decisions we've made around product and engineering are let's keep things as simple as possible, which is better in the sort of philosophical ways where we're not doing anything too fancy or trying to be too smart about things, which would be difficult now in any case with artificial intelligence, you need always data to train your models. If you don't have that data, your models are not going to be very good. So we don't have all that data right now. It's hard to get it contextualized. Um, so when people talk about data, it can also be like data across your entire set, your entire population or the entire problem space, but then it won't be as relevant for individual cases. And so it may not be as contextual for my case. And in order to make a model that works really well for me, I need a lot of data from people similar to me or cases similar to mine. We, we don't have all that data. Your models are just not gonna be very good. Um, and you're also limited if you're looking at language models, for example, like, do you have enough in this language versus some other heuristics you could use are a lot simpler. So the things that we have used um, are language agnostic. They're, they're 
actually pretty much like content agnostic at the moment. We're looking at user features. So did you create your account recently? Uh, are you followed by someone I follow? So these things also work in all languages, which means that our product is easier to build. It works very well. And it sort of like scales in the sense of it applies to many more people and all languages from the get-go instead of having to train individual models for each language, which probably wouldn't work that well anyways, from what I know of how much work it takes to build these. Um, so always like with any situation where you're resource constrained, which is very true of startups, also true in some other environments where you, you just only have so much to work with. You figure you out- You can't boil the ocean. Right? You gotta do one thing at a like, time. You also think about like, what can we achieve with the minimal resources we have? Like how do we get the biggest bang for our buck? And so if you can do 5% of the work, but achieve 70% of like your goal, do that first, do the low hanging fruit first, instead of, let's say we want to build um, AI models that would take a lot more work. And my opinion is that it would still be worse outcomes than what we've achieved. So you might do like 80% more work and only get to, 50% effectiveness as opposed to like 70% when you go with really simple heuristics. Um, so it's always this balance of like, what are the trade-offs? How much work does it take and how effective is it? And I think the approach we've taken is a lot less work and actually more effective than the like kind of smart technology AI approach, which seems really shiny, but doesn't really work that well. It's one of the hardest things in entrepreneurship. It was one, and we had it, I've had it in a number of companies we've, I've built or helped build. And one, Andrew his campaign was a good one too. It was like, on one hand, you're like, okay, we want to win the presidency. We want to seriously contend for the presidency. What does that mean? There's a million pieces of that, right? But the other end of the day was, well, if we want to contend, we have to get on the debate stage. And how do you get on the debate stage? We need 65,000 people to give us a dollar. So the, the goal goes from boiling the ocean, running for president to like uh, just 65,000 human beings giving $1. How to make that as easy as possible. Um, and that's, I think a lot of entrepreneurs lose sight of that at times, um, for, not for a bad reason, for lack of, not for lack of ambition, but maybe lack of focus at times. What it seems to be great about Block Party to me is that you use the tools Twitter already has. How would it start to work for other platforms like Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram? So we have the very short term right now, which is just building on Twitter. A little bit further out, we do want to build cross-platform understanding that abuse and harassment is never limited to just one not just platform. on twitter and no, it's not. <laughs> you get a lot of spillover you also have very creative harassers who mount these cross-platform attacks and know how to navigate terms of service from one platform to the next and they take advantage of the fact that platforms don't really coordinate um so we do want to go cross-platform i think further out than that is not just building on top of other platforms that exist already and are large and have APIs, um, but actually defining our own sort of safety and um, yeah, trust and safety APIs that other platforms would integrate. So if you think about new social networks that are popping up, they oftentimes don't think about moderation, safety constructs until a little when bit you're later. Building, it's the last thing you're thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it shouldn't be, but in a lot of ways, a lot of times it is. Yeah. Right. It, it's tricky to think too far ahead on that front because there won't be any abuse on your platform if you have nobody using it. No one's on so it. Yeah. You kind of need to build a platform <laughs> that people want to use, but you also need to be thinking about what are the potential misuse of technology. So it is a balance of don't over engineer anything too early, but also don't let things go off the rails as soon as you get any kind of traction. 
But one thing we're thinking about for Block Pride is like, how do we start to um, define what are those safety constructs that all platforms should be thinking about? How do we make it easier for new people building uh, these new social networks and new ways of interacting uh, to integrate safety constructs from early on? So one analogy I use is um, with payments infrastructure online, Stripe has done a really good job of defining if you want to take credit card payments online, if you want to do payment stuff online, like you don't need to build all that payment stuff yourself. Just integrate with the Stripe API. And Stripe is the expert in doing all the payment stuff. So what's nice about Stripe being the API is they help to define what are the constructs you should care about. So there's a customer model. You have plans. You have subscriptions. They make it easy for you to clarify your thinking as a consumer of their API. So Block Party uses a Stripe API. It makes us clean up all of our models and how we put things in our system because we're trying to match to what Stripe has implemented. What Block Party can do is kind of be those um, APIs for safety moderation and help to shape how other platforms are thinking about moderation because in order to integrate with us, they'd have to map out what does it mean to mute, to block, to report, or whatever um, APIs become the sort of like dominant constructs. For those of you who don't speak code, like myself, API is application programming interface. And let me see if I get this right. It's basically when, like I'm building a website, I wanna put, I wanna put a Spotify player on there. Spotify's got an API application programming interface that I can go on and use. I can see their code, I can act it, and then I can slot it into my site or my info's feeding with theirs. And it's 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 some it's a form I think of open source in a way, in the sense that it's it's collaborative. I don't know, you know about coding better than me. But I'm getting that right yeah. for the people that are listening that aren't aren't coders. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for calling out that. I, I kind of skew technical in the conversation. You're totally I think fine. The simple- the simplest way to think about APIs is that you have different computer systems that want to talk to each other. So they define a way of talking to each other. And there it is. Um, you, you can specify, <laughs> specify like what are the ways you want to talk? And it may just be like with the Stripe API for payments, it's very easy to explain. Like um, we just say, like, we want to be able to take a payment and, yes. and like, you know that the payment has been taken. And yes. um, what's nice then is like a site like block party, we can take payments, but we don't have to build out all the payments stuff ourselves. We just tell Stripe like, hey, we have a customer that wants to take a payment. Can you handle it? it Stripe handles right. it and then lets us know, okay, they have paid. Done, yeah. It's all good. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. 
Don't take my word for it, Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So let's talk, um, you said something really interesting before. Let's talk a bit about First Amendment because I think you are filling a void that big tech has not done themselves. Um, and so this is, I'm, I believe in, um, free speech, I think it's, there's a reason it's first and I think it's um, foundational to um, civilization in many ways and or, or like developed civilization today and democracy in particular. But I believe that you can say whatever you want to extent, and you know, it's a, 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 outside of let's call like what's predefined legal hate speech. Um, but what I don't like about big tech is that we've like leaned on that but we've also leaned the other way where we're like, but if people are free to say whatever they want, our algorithm is still going to distribute that nonsense like across our platforms too. Um, and they're, they're trying to figure it out. They being the Google, Facebook, Apple of the world. Um, and what you've done is said, Apple, stop, Facebook, stop trying to, or in this case, Twitter, stop trying to be the, First Amendment police here and put it on the person. You're like, okay, people are saying whatever they want. I'm going to just filter out what I'm comfortable seeing and I don't want to distribute it and share it in my face. Is that the future in your in your opinion where it's it's going to be less on the the big tech companies to, to filter this out and more on us? I think people will actually be happy with that. It's kind of what you've done. What are you what are your thoughts there? Yeah, there's there's so many things I want to address. Uh the first is around like free speech or allowing people to say what they want. Um, I think a very simplistic interpretation of this is like, yes, everybody can just say what they want and like we, we should aspire to that on platforms. Um, and we don't put any sort of uh, restrictions on what can be posted. And, and that's like the truest form of free speech in practice because of things like abuse and harassment, many people can't actually speak freely because they know that if they speak, they will be inundated with harassment. And the repercussions to that are so much that people are self-silencing. And I, I sense this as well, like in my own posting online, I know there are certain topics that if I talk about them, the repercussions will be so negative that I will wish I had not done that. And so I'll preemptively hold back and so that's not really freedom of speech then like no, what you're doing not. is allowing the like unchecked abuse to silence certain people and so even that conception of like first amendment like you should have freedom of speech is flawed in that way um, but building on that idea is um this, this notion that it's not just speech there are repercussions to it there are things that happen after the speech um, and for a long time, we've kind of viewed the words or media that people post online as like, that's it. And not really understanding, we're not understanding what are the ramifications of that. Um, we got to see on January 6th, 
some very clear ramifications of allowing people to post things and interact online. It's not just that they're sharing content with each other. Like it does turn into offline world consequences. This brings me to a next point, which is that our governance models don't understand this. So when I talk about governance, it's um, both things like offline laws. So we have the constitution kind of, we've, talked about first amendment constitution um and other like the other laws that apply in physical nation states and local jurisdictions um but there's also sort of like the governance of online worlds where we don't really have the equivalent there um so there's laws offline so if you do certain things that are illegal that violate the laws you may face repercussions for them online we don't have an equivalent system of governance and we also don't have a system of governance that contains both the offline and online worlds together and understands that the ramifications of online speech can actually be, let's say, murder or insurrection. And because we don't have a system of law or governance that understands that, we're very limited uh, right now to trying to appeal to offline world systems of governance like are there some laws that you have violated in the offline world? So have you like incited an insurrection? <laughs> have you incited violence? And that's the only way we take any kind of action against online speech. Whereas there's a whole bunch of stuff that's happened in between the online speech and like murder <laughs> that are bad. We joke about IRL versus URL, right? Like URL online, yeah. IRL in real life. That distinction is so blurred, right? Like, especially in this past year when almost all of our interactions have been digital. Yeah. Like, there's oh, not yeah. really so big difference is, between the whole thing's IRL, weirdly, even though it's online. Right. You, 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 but you said something I had never thought of, and it's this concept of uh, basically when this First Amendment was written and for hundreds of years, it was... People can say whatever they want because it it's just it's just noise. Um, there wasn't like streamlined ways to communicate, and then freedom of the press was part of it as well. But now you're talking about um, other parts of freedom of speech that are almost uniquely on the internet. So like it's one thing for one person to start shouting hate speech at the top of a mountain or saying something mean. It's another thing if they're talking to twenty thousand, hundred thousand, a million people because that's like uh, a various and it, it, that's like an assembly and it may not be peaceful based on that language and now and then in the internet you're not just talking about words you could be talking about pictures and videos and animation and god knows what this problem that we're facing is so big that we have to reconceptualize all of governance um and i think it's a phase shift that's as significant as say going from tribal communities to feudal states or feudal states with like monarchy to modern liberal democracies. Like this is a very big transition in how all of society functions and just quibbling about like one particular law doesn't feel like it's going to get us to where we need to be in terms of governance. And one other <laughs> thing I would point out is um, the rules that determine how people interact uh come in a few forms. So there's laws where we have this idea that like laws are very strong and if they're uh, violated, they will be enforced by some form of punishment or fines. Or there's, there's some kind of enforcement there. But most of what people do in the offline world 
is not just skirting the edge of what's legal or not. There, there are also social norms around like what is acceptable behavior and how do I want to behave amongst other people. And I pick up cues from others around me. So even if things aren't illegal, I won't necessarily do them. Much easier to, to shout someone on Twitter than to actually look someone in the eye and say the same thing. Most of the stuff, like, uh, for example, the people that would hate on Hillary Clinton, I would just beg many of them to look her in the eye as a human being and say that because Hillary is a very impressive person, right? Like, and yeah. like, you know, like it's stuff, yeah. you know, is that what you're saying? Yeah. So I'm saying like, there is, there's a stuff that should be clearly delineated as this is not acceptable. And if you, if you violate these rules, there will be repercussions to it. There's that set of things that uh, we probably need to be a bit stronger on. Right now, there's very little governance of anything happening there's online. There's no consequences just being an asshole on the internet. And, and the fact that like even some of the things that are delineated as not acceptable don't get enforced that way means that people implicitly understand that they can still get away with doing things yeah. that are not it's allowed. A, it's frowned um, upon. <laughs> Slap on the wrist. So there's that side of things, but I think there's also quite a bit that we need to do in terms of setting better norms online. So maybe it's not enforceable Anyway, but it's enforceable in the sense of like the community may shun you or you may be looked down upon or like we evolve social norms that are just better for interacting with each other. Uh, and sure, there may be some range of what people personally find acceptable or not. Um, like just like in the offline world, you'll see people who are nicer or ruder and it's all like within some general distribution of like what is appropriate social behavior talk about future of censorship for example censorship maybe that's defining like the absolute worst things that you're not allowed to say but i think that's a very limiting way of looking at all of our online systems and how people interact and our participants in a digital ecosystem a digital society it's not just defined by what are the worst things that you're not allowed to do but also like where are the norms and what are people expecting that in terms of interaction with each other. Where it's yeah. this socially acceptable behaviors on the internet. And right now it's the wild west where there's nothing that's technically not socially acceptable because everything is, it's just, it's just yeah. a mess. Um, where like there's stuff you say online that you could never get away with in person because whether it's common sense or common decency or whatever we've all agreed to as like rule of law and like social norms, it's unacceptable. You mentioned this idea of like the wild west. I think that's a very good metaphor to use as well. When you look at the lack of enforcement, the lack of laws and justice. And in that environment, we kind of see mob justice or vigilante justice. And I think what people often will call cancel culture fits into that where because there's no real system of enforcement that we can trust, like there's no law enforcement that we think will, in most cases, when there are violations, like go and follow through on the enforcement. Um, we end up having individual citizens piling on to one person who does something that's deemed not acceptable. And the punishment in those cases ends up often being pretty disproportionate to what the original supposed crime was. And it just feels very imperfect because you do want there to be some accountability. And so you, you get the sense of like, okay, this person said something that was very inappropriate. They did something that was inappropriate. They should be held to account. But because there's not a good system of justice and you have a huge pile on from the entire internet, it does feel a little bit over the top. And so we go from like no accountability to way too much accountability in certain cases, in most cases, none. And I think the solution is not like, let's get rid of accountability 
It's like, how do we design a better system of governance and law and enforcement so that the accountability is commensurate with the yes. like, like if you made a terrible tweet in your teens, if you behaved inappropriately at a party, there are consequences for those actions and they should exist. Does it mean that you should be unemployable the rest of your life? Um, except by like far right-wing organizations, like probably not, right? Yeah, like that's, yeah, right. we all make mistakes. Hell, I do all the time. And I'm sure I'll be canceled over and over. And that's, it's it's frustrating. Um, and then on the other hand, it's like, okay, but Harvey Weinstein was a disaster. So that guy needs to go to jail. Like, you know, so there's like, you, there is a middle ground, which the internet doesn't really like to have right now. We don't really love nuance. Um, let me ask you this. I'm just gonna come off as an asshole question. So I'm going to preface it by saying, I'm asking this in the in a human way, um, as nicely as I can. Do you think we're too sensitive as a society, particularly on the internet, in the sense of, like I grew up like sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me, right? Like we're all out here and people are like, oh, I'm getting bullied or there's harassment, but the reality is like, it's just dumb people saying mean things, the type of person it takes to say some of the comments you were mentioning that harassed you, like, to me, I'm like, well, who cares about that person? He's clearly, or she, probably usually he, a sociopath, pay them no mind, move on. Uh, and on, on, so that's like where maybe sometimes I lean, but other times we have people going the complete opposite. Like, this is a travesty. We have to do all these things. And have we built ourselves up to be too sensitive to overreact at time? Like, what are your thoughts on kind of our, the general sensitivity level of your internet users and the press, I think too. I think there's um, kind of subtext to this question, which is the context and a collapse of context. Um, and when you frame that question, you pose that question, I immediately think of different people's reactions to certain things given what context they are in. So for example, if we're talking about like negative comments, um, maybe one negative comment you can brush off and it's not that big a deal. You can just say like ignored the trolls. Um, when it happens every day, all day, it's very difficult to shake that off. And I think when you have folks who don't experience the sort of like persistent harassment, only looking at individual examples, the response to just shake it off is not understanding the context of like dealing with this nonstop. Um, and I think there is a very real mental health impact and um, it, it's maybe a bit more understandable for folks who have dealt with it a lot to, to say like, Oh, I, when you, when yeah, you point you out one me? bad are tweet, you me? just shake it off. Or you see what's in my timeline right now. Like you shake this off asshole. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. So there's a pretty big difference there. Like I could show you a couple of the, the tweets I've had to see over the last couple of days and they might all seem fine. Um, or like it's easy to brush it off, but in the context of like dealing with this for, I don't know how many, like over 10 years and a lot of it. And sometimes it's huge pylons. Um, it, it feels very different. Another analogy I have heard sometimes is like, um, if somebody steps on your foot by accident and you respond really negatively, they may say like, why are you so upset? Like, why are you so sensitive? Like, I just accidentally stepped on your foot. Like, you don't need to like get upset at me. But if you're the person whose foot got stepped on and you've been stepped on 
like thousands of times and your foot is sore already, then when, when this other person like accidentally steps on you, it already hurts. And it's a huge pattern of problematic behavior and hurt that you have accrued. And so the responses feel different and they, they feel mismatched and like both sides may feel um, upset at the other because they're just operating from different contexts. I think that is important to call it. We have such different experiences and maybe something that's worse about um, the online world is that it can be harder to understand what someone else is dealing with. So like, I don't know what your notifications look like on Twitter. You don't know what mine look like. It's harder for me to have an understanding of what you may be dealing with or for you um, likewise versus in the real world. If we're sitting in the same room or if we're standing in the same room and I see a bunch of people like, come over to you and are shouting me things, I can get a sense of like, you're dealing with a lot right now. And it's harder to see that online or you can't see DMs very easily um, of other of other folks online. So these private messages, these direct messages, they're meant to be one-on-one communication. So nobody else has access to what you're seeing. And so you don't really know like what other crap somebody is dealing with privately versus in the offline world. When, when people are harassing me on the street, the passersby can kind of see that there's somebody there. They can overhear the shouting or that kind of thing. Um, so a lot of this context collapses online. So we just had this woman on, um, Sherry Turkle, man, to, trying to define her career. So, but she's just done so many re, so much research. I, I'm assuming you're familiar with her. So much research yeah. on the human side of tech. And she said empathy is not just um, putting yourself in someone's shoes. It's putting yourself in someone's problem. Um, and that's the point of the context you're talking about where it's not just the one-off tweets. It's that for a number of people that these the, the, the sheer volume of people making these comments over days, weeks, months, years, maybe a whole lifetime becomes its own version of a problem. Um, and that to me, it's a, that's a really, really, um, it's a compelling point I haven't, I haven't thought about, um, and I think it's this, it's this piece of empathy that a lot of us need to start having. And even in these social norms online, right, where this is the new the new version of uh, our, our IRL, if you will, as we start to go online. Um, so thank you for answering that, my asshole question, if you will. In terms of your perfect world, in terms of how we, I'm going to use the word censor, but it's the wrong word, but like censor and filter out harassment and, and hate speech and, and things like that on the Internet, what does it look like if we nail it? And what does it look like if we go too far, right? Because I know you know you're dealing with the double-edged sword here. Um, and it's not clear it's not your job as an entrepreneur to like regulate this. But I'm really curious your opinion as someone who's on the front lines of this. So if we go too far and if we nail it, what do those look like in your eyes? I think there's a few things that need to happen across the ecosystem. So it's not just a block party solution or like the platform solution. It is what I was referring to earlier with this like whole system of governance that we need. I think the ideal case is we figure out a new way of governance, a uh, new way of establishing social norms where we realize all this promise of the internet and connectivity and anybody being able to reach anybody else and the democratization of information, of access, um, really smart people, interesting people being able to connect with others and have really creative innovations and reimaginations of human condition. Like all, there's all that good stuff that we've been promised with the internet. Um, and the best case is we figure out a new system of governance that enables that. Um, and it will probably have some form of accountability where we've defined what 
is not acceptable, what is, and when things are done that are unacceptable, there are repercussions that are commensurate with how bad those things were that happened. Um, so there's kind of that infrastructure that needs to exist that spans across different platforms, across the internet. Um, and it also has to overlay with the offline world. So you can't get away with just doing some stuff online and then it turns into offline world harm. And then you can kind of right, right. sidestep by, yeah. by like avoiding jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of like best case infrastructural okay. solutions. Um, building on this now, do a little bit of like public infrastructure and private solutions. I think where block party fits right now is uh, when public infrastructure isn't quite there yet, we still need to keep working on that. But in the meantime, we build private solutions for it. So an analogy might be um, for public safety um, and transit. Sometimes when I'm trying to go home late at night, I don't feel super safe taking public transit, uh, like waiting at the bus stop in the dark. I don't feel that great about it. And so the bigger problem is that public infrastructure and safety isn't there. And so we need to advocate for that to be fixed and there are policy solutions and and funding issues uh, that need to go into that. But in the meantime, as a private citizen, I can also appeal to private sector solutions. uh, So I can call a car service or a taxi and get myself home safely. And so it doesn't mean that we can only work on one of those at a time, but it is important that we give people more solutions. A block party is like that private solution for defense and safety while we're working on the broader public like the ecosystem has to keep yes. up with you guys. Yeah. So we need both. Um, one thing I don't like about, for example, like in the sort of like transit analogy, one thing I don't like about car services that take over infrastructure of a city is that then there's underinvestment in the public services. Like I don't want that either. So you want to have both of these things. Um, and I think there is a lot of room for public-private collaboration um, and a more creative reimagining of how these things can fit together. Uh, I recently read Mariana Mazzucato's book, Mission Economy, which... I have not read it, does, but I have it's, it's seen really this, great. the hype on yeah. this, yes. I really like the way we that she presents of um, thinking about public-private partnerships and how it's not just this model of like, everything is a market economy and the government is only here to fix things that are broken. Like when externalities aren't captured, like the mark, the, the government will come in and fix it um, or regulate when some things are broken. You can actually have them work together to achieve much greater things than just the market or just the government alone. And um, like the example she cites is like with um, putting man on the moon, like that, yes, that's that it. was not going to happen with ones. like, with just, a market economy or like just the government, you need, you need these to come together. And I think where we are, a lot of the challenges facing humanity at the moment, we need that kind of um, broader thinking and mission alignment. We've talked about with Andrews that uh, the government's terrible at many, many things, but there are certain things, particularly let's call it climate change and AI and regulation of the internet and maybe our press at certain points. like. If the government does nothing, we're toast. Like, the government has to lead. They, they have to, infrastructure, like they have to. Um, whether we like it or not, it's got problems too big. Um, so the, here's the one thing that gives me hope. Um, I'm actually curious, I'll probably flip this on you, what, what is giving you hope? What, what, one thing that gives me hope is millennials as parents. Um, because one of the, if you're talking about social norms on the internet, um, 
usually that comes from a community and a home and being raised, how your parents taught you, how your older siblings and things like that taught you. And a lot of us, like for me and probably you growing up, like you created an, an online account or social media account and your parents were so behind the curve, they have no idea what you're doing online. They can't parent to you on the internet. Um, but over time, I think our generation will somewhat keep up with their kids and understand what they can do on the internet and improve that. So that gives me hope in terms of establishing norms on the internet. Maybe that's too optimistic. What gives you hope in this space? You just kind of touched on a few things, but I'm curious if you had to wrap it up. The fact that the internet has allowed people to connect in ways that weren't possible before. And you see this, especially amongst activists and people who are pushing for change. And whereas these people previously may have been minorities in their communities and not been able to connect with others who would share their values and share um, that passion for driving things forward, it is possible now to find those peers. And we're seeing those people be able to come together and organize. Um, And it is very heartening to see youth activists who are so smart, so insightful, way beyond what I could have what was I doing as a kid on the internet? Definitely not organizing movements. (laughs) Um, So I think that is very powerful that people can be connected. So this is that promise of the internet um, that we were sold a few decades ago. That's true. We were sold Um, this. We were sold utopia. There's definitely a bunch of negative things that have come alongside that. And one of the unfortunate things seeing, for example, the youth activists that a lot of them are dealing with a ton of abuse and harassment that is intended to drive them off. Um, off of their platforms and derail them from what they're trying to achieve. But it is really nice to see that there is organization happening. And um, I personally have felt very lucky to be able to connect with other folks uh, in doing diversity, equity, inclusion work. Um, I feel like my life is a lot richer now that I have access to so many more people, even if it's just following folks on Twitter and seeing sort of stream of consciousness, like random thoughts that they're sharing throughout the day it gives me so much more perspective than would have ever been possible previously when I would only ever be regularly exposed to a handful of people in my orbit that I interact with normally. But now like I log into Twitter and all day long, I can see perspectives of folks from all around the world, very different environments, different, very, very different lived experiences. Um, And that is, that's pretty cool. Like just to, to have that simulation, um, to have my assumptions challenged all the time. And also one of the great things about um, all the social media sharing, you can see all the other people's um, lives is it doesn't necessarily even require that much work from them. Like, so they don't have to be educating me one-on-one. I can just like follow them and get a bunch of their insights for free, which is amazing. They educate you without, without having to pay attention to you or whatever. Right. I I don't have to put the burden on them to to teach me what their experience is like, if they're willing to share. I mean, obviously it's still taking some work for them to share their experiences. um, But it's a much more leveraged way of doing so. Uh, Like I can follow trans activists and understand that experience without necessarily having to go like bother people in my community to tell me like, what is your life like? What are the issues you deal with? Like, what are you thinking when you deal with these situations? I can just get access to all these like really smart people or like um, the Black Lives Matter activists over the last like year. Um, I feel like I can do a lot more education work that is passive on the activist part, but I can learn a lot from them. 
without them having to do a bunch of individual education work for me. You're so right that uh, the internet has given a voice to a number of people that just typically were just voiceless in, in a lot of um, particularly new and exciting innovations or technologies or when things are changing. Um, and the other thing, look, to your point earlier is like one of the things, so I, I'm on Twitter, only 11% of voters, I guess is the number I have, but a very, like a small percentage of people are actually on Twitter and an even smaller percentage of that actually comment. So it's one of the things I, I like listening to where the activists are saying, but I also hope that someday um, it's one of the things that I did a lot of work in the autism community um, when I was at UBS and you had your autism activists and then you had just families that didn't particularly speak up a lot, but they had um, and they, they didn't always agree. And I think to your point, like if you can make more of these social norms on the Internet, you can get the, the voices of the activists that in many cases have not been heard. And also voices of people that don't consider themselves an activist actually never really speak up, but have some really interesting perspectives that no one's hearing. Um, and that's where, frankly, the work you're doing to frankly create a safer spot for people to talk. Um, and your point, your fascinating point is that there's a certain element of silencing freedom of speech when people are afraid to say stuff because of harassment. Um, and no matter what side of the aisle you on, that is uh, fundamental to free speech, um, you know? So Tracy, Man, I love doing these conversations because I, I, when I learn a lot and I feel like they're like three or four times you hit me in the side of the head with something in a, in, a, in, a, in a healthy way. So thank you. Where can our listeners find and download your app? Uh, so we're blockpartyapp.com. It's a web app, so you don't need to download anything. Just go to blockpartyapp.com. You can find us on Twitter at blockpartyapp underscore. Thank you from the bottom of my heart and um, keep doing what you are doing. And I hope... Um, you feel somewhat encouraged after this conversation. I feel more hopeful, so thank you. Um, but blockpartyapp.com, Tracy Chow, you are a superstar. Thank you for joining. Yang Speaks, the future of censorship. Thank you for having me. It's very fun to have this conversation. <laughs>